If you want to turn to the book of Ephesians, we will be spending some time there today. Ephesians is a letter. It's in the second half of your Bible. If you have a physical copy of the Bible and you're opening it, it's to the right. If you're scrolling, you'll scroll down a while and you'll get to the part we call the New Testament. It's everything from Jesus forward. Some of the letters were written to the early believers. They had questions about how to how to live, how to follow, how to gather, how to worship. And uh, a letter like the Ephesians is instructional and challenging. So uh, as you will see on our title slide, as best we can count, uh, this is part 26. I think we've been in and out of this series for the better part of a year. And today, uh, my goal will be to summarize some of the main truths that we see in Ephesians. We titled the, the series Identity Surrendered, that we take our human identity, the sum of our thoughts, feelings, approaches, uh, values, and we surrender them to God's will and God's plan. We surrender them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, the comments that I make will uh, hopefully help us under, understand that. Even if you're joining today and you uh, have never heard of Ephesians, <laughs> it is my hope that uh, these few things, few comments that I will make in summary of this letter that would spur you to see your identity, uh, to read this entire letter, the whole six chapters, uh, really wouldn't cost you uh, more than a half an hour, uh, something like that or less, depending on the speed that you read. And there is wonderful, uh, wonderful truth in here. Uh, in the middle of this series, uh, I actually had my identity stolen. Uh, I didn't uh, really want that to be a, a sermon illustration uh, in this series, but it was. Anybody else get the whole unemployment thing? Somebody opened up a, okay, a couple of you, uh, that happened. Uh, a wave of those uh, sort of happened, and uh, I think just the popular people, right, it happened to. <laughs> Who knows uh, why that happened, but uh, it did. It, it, it came about, and somebody opened up an unemployment claim in, in my name, and at first I thought it was, you know, the church telling me that I was unemployed, and I thought, oh, man, what did I do? <laughs> All these sort of things go through your mind, but um, you, you think about that identity being stolen. It's instead today, uh, let's end this series together and think about our identity being surrendered. Lord, I give up. I want my identity not to be in myself, but in you. All right, here's where we will begin. Believers are chosen to be a part of God's family. He saves us by grace through faith. A couple times today we'll wait outside of Ephesians. I want you to see here in, in the way that Peter writes this to believers who were being persecuted and scattered. He tells them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse right here is really about a volume worth of reflections. Uh, there are amazing things in there. But I want you to see that God has always been working in a sense of choosing a group of people and working in them. It's not that we have no choice in the matter. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, but God works. He chooses, he calls out a group of people. This is echoed in the very beginning of Ephesians in the way Paul writes to the believers there. 
Okay, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Sound familiar? We're chosen for a holy, a called out purpose. Our lives are going to be different. We have an identity that's different. In love, I'll continue. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. A couple times in here uh, you see the word grace. We find out in Ephesians 2 that these promises are amazing and we enter into them uh, in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the work of God. Verse 9, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So God strips away any right that we may claim to our own inheritance, any sense that we may have earned it, we have not. It is from God. It is his gift. It is our response. And so we enter into the promises of God by the grace of God, a gift of God, through his son Jesus Christ. And we, we do so by faith. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift that God has given us. I encourage you today, if you do not have a relationship with God, to know that God can stir and work in your heart to the place that he would have you respond and commit your life to Jesus Christ. And you can't earn it. It's nothing that you've done on your own merit. But you come and you say, I trust Christ. And I say that he's enough. I repent of my sins. I want to live his way. I want my identity be, to be exchanged to be under the authority of Jesus. This is God's plan. This is what he desires. And he is working to pull people into his family. Okay, that is powerful stuff. I want to just establish that as the, the foundation of the type of truth that we have seen and explored together in Ephesians. Okay, second, all believers unify with other believers. Jesus' blood is powerful to bring this unity about, but maintaining unity takes a great effort. Now, we just saw in chapter 1, uh, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. We just sang the power of the blood. If you're, if you're new to Christianity, you might think it's weird that people sing songs about somebody's blood washing us clean. Okay, but that's, that's what happens. Our sins are washed, are washed away by the blood of Jesus. Our dirt and filth and everything that we have done that brings shame upon ourselves is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Now, that is an individual sense, but Paul goes out of his way to show how that blood unites. The blood unites. We see it in the first chapter of Ephesians. Uh, ran through a lot of this last week as a theme in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, I would recommend to you verses 11 through the rest of the chapter. All right, and he makes, he makes reference, uh, verse uh, 16, uh, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, right? the blood of Jesus, thereby killing hostility. And so he desires for believers to come together. Unity is a massive theme in Ephesians. It's, 
a theme in the Bible. I want to go back to Psalm. Here's Psalm 133. It's a short psalm. Uh, you can jot it down in your notes and you can go and you can read there. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. All right? This is more than just the blood making us clean personally. This is the blood of Jesus then bringing us together in unity. A picture in this psalm of what Jesus' blood would do and does. All right, Ephesians 4. We'll talk a little bit about unity and what it means and how it comes about. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, a number of things are here for us to begin to have to churn in our souls as we think about unity. First of all, Paul is a prisoner. He probably didn't feel unified with the body. He probably felt isolated. But yet he's writing to them about the power of Jesus' blood to unify believers. Now, as you look at these verses, I want to return to something that I hit on last week as we closed just the last couple of verses of chapter 6. As you read this, how is unity presented? I just want to give you a minute to, to think about that. Is unity presented as something that happens easily? Does Paul say just because you're all believers and you've trusted individually for your salvation that everything after that is just going to be rosy? Is that what he's communicating? I see a few heads going back and forth, not up and down. Okay, so unity then is something within the body of Christ, not just a local church like ours. Unity is something that takes some work. Well, how do we know that? All right, we'll start in the middle with all humility and gentleness with patience. When was the last time you had your patience tested? Maybe it was another driver on the way to church this morning or your children <laughs> trying to get ready for church this morning or some customer service agent you were trying to interact with this week. You don't have the patience to deal with that. All right. When was the time another believer tested your patience? You saw a post on Facebook that you didn't really care for. And it's, oh, I thought you were a believer. Well, uh, and we don't have the patience of that. What is it? What Then bearing with one another in love. Love here is an amazing concept. It's not a love that just loves because we're loved back or makes us feel good. Love here is a self-sacrificial love that we have for another person because we value their good above our own. That's the love God has for us. It's called agape love, bearing with one another in love. And then what? Eager to maintain the unity the spirit, and the bond of peace. So this kind of unity is a choice. It's a value system. Caught something driving yesterday. I uh, was talking about love and love being a spiritual discipline. A discipline like reading our Bible or prayer. And we have to commit to those things in order to enjoy them more. It's a discipline. It's something we make a part of our life or our schedule, and that love can be that way. I think unity, I want you to see unity that way. Unity is a discipline. 
rather than just kind of filing off into our own echo chamber where all of our thoughts are the ones that matter and all we do is listen to people who agree with us, unity is a choice and it's a discipline to pursue. I want us to see unity that way. Paul makes this letter so clear that Jesus' blood is not just powerful to save us in an individual sense. It is powerful to bring us together. Three applications of unity today, and then I'll move on. If you can't tell, this is a big one. We're not spending this much time in all of them, but this is a big one. Three challenges that I'll give you. Two of them are right here in the pa- in, on the pages. One is race. If you read through chapter 2, 11 through the end of the chapter you see that what Paul is talking about is people from different ethnic backgrounds coming together. Jews who have their customs, they're called out people of God, they have their own religious background, they have the Old Testament scriptures, and then you have Gentiles who are non-Jews, who are not a part of that race of people, not a part of that faith background, and so there's ethnicity and there's culture, and the Gentiles are coming from a place where they're not associated with any of that. And what does Paul say the blood of Jesus is powerful to do? Is powerful to unify those two groups of people. And so as we think about racial or cultural differences, it is my hope that we would seek wherever we can to unify and to not live in an echo chamber only with people who agree with the way we think. Unity is a choice, and it requires hearing others' perspectives in the body of Christ and listening to them. Second, I would, I would uh, challenge here on unity, big church. How do you feel? And I'm not talking about big church like this gathering versus children's church or whatever slang we give to big church. I'm talking about capital C, worldwide body of believers. Uh, Think about churches here in the Akron and Summit County area that preach the gospel and teach the word of God and maybe do things a little bit differently or have a few different tweaks in their beliefs than what we have. How do you approach those different people? Do you approach them from a posture of love and humility and prayer and support and excitement and encouragement? Or do we approach those people as competitors? Hey, Pastor Ben is having an outdoor service today uh, over uh, by the the chapel in Kenmore where they meet, and they're doing baptisms on the boulevard today. Do we snub our nose and go, that's not what we're doing? Or do we say, all right, there's people in the kingdom today, all right, that are getting baptized and giving a proclamation of their faith. I say, praise the Lord. We want to have unity in that sense where we can find unity and be encouraged about what other true believers are doing. We don't always have to approach every other group of believers with criticism and suspicion. We, 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 of course, we want to be discerning. We never say that. But this is a challenge for us to be unified. Third, something specific for our local church, and I will not go long on this, but I think a practical application for unity as it applies to Gospel Memorial Church should come in the consideration of our vote for our Constitution. I am not going to use the Word of God to tell you that you have to vote a certain way. There is nowhere in the Bible that unity means uniformity. All right, And so I'm not going to use the authority of the pulpit and the Word of God to say, well, if you're really unified and you really love Jesus, you're going to vote this way or you're going to vote that way. That is not what I'm doing. Please don't put those words in my mouth. If, however, we are approaching this vote and all we want is our list of preferences in the document, then we don't have unity. 
we have to be able to recognize the difference between a, a preference and a conviction. Personally, as a pastor, if you vote no on this document because of a conviction, that's okay. It's not going to disunify me from you to the point that I'm not going to like you and not ever going to talk to you again. We have to think about unity and what it takes to have life together as a local church. That will be enough on that. But I hope you see my heart in unity and understanding some of the differences in perspective that we may have from time to time. I do want to show you something here about leadership. It says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For what? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There will be leaders who lead us and try to lead in a way that trains and equips and builds up toward unity. That is a serious part of how God wants to bring about unity. We have to consider that as we think about life together in any local church context, not just God's memorial. Okay, big one, number two, about unity. Number three, believers are called to live their lives with great humility among other believers and in their families. I already showed you the first verse of chapter 4. Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, he, what, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Our lives will look different than the world around us. Our lives will look different. And it, it's number uh, verse 2 there, with all humility and gentleness. It takes great humility to live our lives in such a way that we love Jesus and choose not to do some of the things the world does and choose not to conduct ourselves in some of the ways that the world does. It takes great humility to do that and still show love to people who are trying to live their way, lives the way the world does. Paul says that we must approach living a Christian life with great humility. A couple of verses up here that kind of show this, uh, how it happens among other believers and in their families. Okay, now... There's the reminder uh, from verses 1 and 2. Uh, been over that. I want to show you that again. So here, look, 5.1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So a hearkening back to the beginning of the letter where he did such an amazing job of showing how believers are adopted into God's family by grace through faith. Okay? Be imitators of God. And then in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise but unwise. Just reinforcements today that our lives are different. We are trying to imitate God. We want to be careful how we live and how we walk. And if you scan the material between verses 1 and 15 in chapter 5, you see all kinds of things about walking in love, another reminder of that, about sexual immorality, about the things that come out of our mouths and the way that we joke. Uh, we, we see uh, about light and we see about darkness and we see uh, about not taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead exposing them, which means that the believer has standards. We pursue a holy life so that we can be like God. 
We need his grace and help to do that. We have to walk with great humility, but that's how we should approach living in not just this day and age, but this is great for believers any time. In their culture, this would have challenged them to buck cultural norms and to live a different way because God has a claim on their life and he wants them to be like that. This is where the challenge of living as a Christian comes in. We want to have the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives and to not, be, not seek to be in control. We see that in chapter 5. The specific illustration that he gives is about alcohol. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It takes humility to say, I'm not in control and I want something else to control me. It takes humility to do that. We see it in some of the instructions given to families. It takes humility to approach every, every relationship and live it the way that God wants it to be lived. It takes humility to do this. Verse 22, I think I have some of these. Yes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It takes humility to do this. For the husband to say, I'm not the most important person in the marriage, and for the wife to say, I'm not the most important person in the marriage, that together we make Christ the king of our marriage and our household, and we do the same thing in our parenting and children. Young people would say, I want to be obedient to my parents. Those of you watching on the live stream, we're going to wait out a moment. You may not be able to hear, but we got a car alarm going off. So everybody take a deep breath. You want to stand up and stretch. I know it's warm in here. I'm okay with that. You just get a little. I'm not going to try and talk over that. Last time before the service, it took about a minute, a couple minutes. There we go. All right. Where was I? <laughs> Do I got to go back to the beginning? No, I won't. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then bond servants. I'm not going to go into all the depths of, of slavery. This is a very challenging passage, but we still see Christ as the goal of obedience in all relationships. It takes humility to do that. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We want to do so with great humility. All right, let's land a plane. Number four. God changes us to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. From those last few verses in 5 and 6, from the uh, challenge from VBS, I'm going to go back to that picture in a minute. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Anytime that we're feeling weak or spiritually attacked, it's not up to us to figure it out. We're strong in the Lord. Our relationship's in the Lord. Our lives are in the Lord. Our households are in the Lord. The very, very end that we looked at last week puts our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the very last couple of verses. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We are under the authority of the Lord Jesus in our desire to follow him 
to be rightly oriented to him as individual believers, as we see in the beginning, to see how we can join and be a part of his family, his call and his purpose, surrendering our identity by faith and God's gifts so that we don't have anything to bring and establish our identity. We trust Jesus. That's the identity God gives us. It's an identity also that loses itself among unity, among brothers and sisters in local bodies and in the greater body of Christ. We lose our identity that way. We lose our identity by walking with great humility and love. And we lose our identity by being under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Wherever we're weak, needing strength. And Paul closing the letter with an emphasis on grace and peace. I have this picture in my recent travels, which I will find a time to talk about with you as a church. That'll be in September. In case you haven't noticed, our church calendar in August has been really full. And so I'm going to pick a night in September and tell you about my recent trip. This is from uh, a picture that is from ancient Corinth. And these ruins uh, were, have only recently been unearthed through archaeology. They didn't know that they were there. Uh, for those of you that know a little bit about the setting of Corinth, it was a place where there was all kinds of sin. And the first letter to the Corinthians and the second by extension uh, are, are in response to how to live a holy life in a church being birthed in a place where there is wild and egregious sin. And in the way back of this picture, in the, at the, the top of that hill, I framed the picture that I took in such a way is actually the temple where they used to worship and do all kinds of incredibly awful things happened in that temple, not worshiping the true God or Jesus, his son, but in, in a stark opposition to that, believers were called to live their lives in holy ways and to not worship like they did there. Now, this specific thing is not just some little rock or pebble, uh, and the, the wall there is it's called, in the Greek, it's called the bima. And if you, um, anybody hear, ever hear that word, bima? A couple hands going up, okay? And so where, what this is, is a place of um, public, I want to say judgment, but I want you to hold that term in your mind, because it's not the judgment that we often think of, okay? In a personal sense, in Ephesians, we have learned how to rightly orient ourselves before God. We have a judgment. Beginning of chapter 2 shows by our nature we're children of God's anger and wrath and the only way out from underneath that is to make a right relationship with God. That's a personal uh, courtroom type of judgment that Jesus paid for by his blood. All right? And we are found not guilty in Christ because of that payment that Jesus did. This is a public place where the authority would sit up there and talk about um, and bring people before it. And it wasn't always for bad things. In the New Testament, the word bima is translated tribunal or judgment seat. And it wasn't always bad things. The his history of this type of a place in public life in their culture uh, also included like celebrating Olympians who had won or had glory, and they would come and they would be commended and they would be honored, or somebody who did something positive for the state. It was a place of relationship with authority. And this spoke to me so powerfully standing on these grounds and being able to sit and grieve at the horrific things that happened in the name of worship in that mountain, but a place where people were be able to, to come and to think about their, their position before authority. Now, sometimes people had shamed the state or the culture. And, and this stump, they were uh, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you see Jesus actually attached to one of these little stumps. And it's where they would receive judgment because they have shamed the culture or shamed the king. It's not a courtroom 
guilt or innocence. Here's my point as we close. If courtroom guilt or innocence was all that mattered before God, then Paul probably would have stopped after chapter 2, halfway through that chapter, because it would have been about the individual benefit of the believer. I hope our salvation, our relationship with God, does not stop with our individual evaluation of ourselves. It shouldn't. We are not just here as a collection of individuals who are in a right relationship with God. We're not. We're here to unify and to press forward and to do life together and to have a right relationship with authority. If all that mattered in public life was guilt or innocence, the criminals would have been treated somewhere else. But God includes this language in the New Testament to show that believers one day will stand before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, not as guilt or innocence, but as an evaluation of how we've lived our lives. That has nothing to do with whether we get into heaven or not. That judgment, Christ has already paid for. That judgment's once and done. Praise the Lord. His blood is powerful to cleanse us, but his blood brings us together. And we will have a bema seat judgment where Christ evaluates our service and our relationship to the authority of our life, just like they experienced in the public square. Do some research on this. It's really incredible. It was amazing to stand there and to think about the power of that authority before you, that political authority and the relationship of the person to the state, and then to see how that word is used in Scripture, our identity, rightly before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, justified and then unified with other believers. That's our identity. How is our identity before Jesus in the courtroom? How is our identity before the Lord as we consider the directives and the commands that Paul gives?